Uh, join me, friends, in a word of prayer as we dismiss the kids into their Sunday school and we also uh, begin our time in God's word. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that as we now focus our hearts, all of our hearts, on your word and instruction from your word, that by your Holy Spirit you would teach us, you would open our eyes to fill us with uh, knowledge of who you are and what you have done for us through your Son, that from the elementary to the youth group to the young adults to the married groups to all of us, Lord, uh, we would be filled with a heart of worship because even listening to your word and being instructed is worshipful. Lord, as our thoughts and our minds and our hearts are again set toward Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. In his name we pray, amen. You guys are dismissed. If you have a Bible, please turn with me to the book of Esther, Esther chapter 4. Uh, it's also going to be projected up here overhead, and there is a sermon insert with a Bible passage um, available. We are in our fourth week in this series in the book of Esther, considering the theme of the silent sovereignty of God that's at work, both, not, both in the story but also in our lives. And what we've been noticing is that each chapter has been giving us a new angle, uh, a new um, and different angle perspective on how to view the truth of God's providence and how that works out in our lives. And so today we're looking at Esther 4, and I've entitled this sermon, For Such a Time as this. And so would you all arise and stand with me as we now give our full attention to the reading of God's holy and inspired word today. Esther chapter 4, verses 1 to 17. Hear now the reading of God's word. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry who went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was a great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hatak, one of, her, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hatak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasury for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hatak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hatak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. 
Then Mordecai told them the reply to Esther. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. I want to begin today by telling you a story. Over 40 years ago, my father was in the Korean army, and one day he was returning back to the base after a visit home when he saw a girl on a train. He didn't say anything, for he was cool. But when he finally got to his stop, as he was leaving and exiting the train, he handed this girl a piece of paper with his name on it, the base's address, and his phone number where she could reach him. I think you know where this is leading. It's a little romantic, right? (laughs) Except this girl was not my mother. (laughs) My mom was her friend. Well, it didn't work out between my dad and this girl because he was more interested in my mother, so he pursued her instead. And her response? She said no, because she was getting ready to move to America. Yet not one to be easily denied, my father persisted in his request. And finally, my mom agreed to meet with him the evening before she left for the States. After all, she would never see this man, or so she thought. So they set up a time to meet at a cafe in her neighborhood, and I would love to tell you that my dad met her and wooed her and won her over that meeting, but he didn't. And here's why. The meeting never happened. My mom was at a farewell party thrown by her friends and totally forgot that she had agreed to meet this guy at the cafe. So when she returned home that evening, her younger brother, my uncle, had told her that this old man, this ajashi, as they say in Korean, had come looking for her. My dad is seven years older. And he had been waiting for her, but she never showed up. Now, remember, this is the early 1970s, and there was still curfew in Korea. And so she assumed he had left, because if you missed curfew, there was no way that he would be able to return home that night. But she figured, well, why not give it a shot? I'll go to the cafe anyway. And lo and behold, on her way there, who did she meet in the middle of the street as curfew was upon them? That old man, (laughs) my dad. And in the words of my mother in telling me the story, she said, this must have been the plan of God. Why would he still be there? Why didn't he go back home? Why didn't he respect curfew? How did we run into each other on that exact street at that exact time? So fast forward 40 years, and that's the story of how I ended up here today. Now, I tell you the story of how my parents met because it's full of coincidences. 
My dad happened to be on this train at the same time as this girl. My mom had to, happened to be this girl's friend. This girl happened to not have an ID, which is why she needed to bring my mom, who had an ID, to get onto this government base, which is how they ended up meeting. All of these coincidences, the full version of the story, is quite amazing. Now, from one perspective, their story, from beginning to end, is about people who just happened to be at the right place at the right time. But you hear a story like that and it makes you think, is there meaning behind the details? Was there a purpose? Are these just happy accidents? And as Christians, here's what we need to learn. At the heart of this story and the heart of all of our stories lies this question, do things happen by coincidence or by providence? You see, we live in a world where God is ultimately and intimately involved. He plans, he governs, he sustains the world that he created. And because there is a personal God, that's why the details of your life are never the result of mere coincidence. Never the result of the the products of chance or complete randomness. They are the result of providence. It makes a big difference in how you answer the question, does God work coincidentally in my life? Or does he work providentially? Does God establish a few major things in your life and just hope that the rest of the details fall into place? Or does he sovereignly work out those details? Imagine with me, what if you began to understand all of your life through God's providence? And therefore, you were able to seize every hard moment of life, not as inconveniences that come your way, but as opportunities he's given you to live out the gospel. As we look at Esther 4, I want to focus on this gospel truth. God's providence means that hard and difficult moments are not inconveniences to avoid, but opportunities to act. If God is truly in control and the world runs by his providence, not coincidence, then hard and difficult moments are not inconveniences to avoid, but opportunities to act. So I want to explore this gospel truth and this passage by looking at three things in our text. A truth to live by, a moment of decision, and a power that changes. So first, consider with me a truth to live by. The most important verse in this chapter, in fact, the most important verse in all of Esther, is verse 14, where Mordecai says to Esther, and who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. In this one verse, God gives us a truth to live by that colors not just the story of Esther, but colors our entire lives. Who knows? Maybe God has established you to be here where you are with the people around you for such a time as this. In order to understand the impact of that verse, we need to take a look at the story. So let me catch you up a little bit. Mordecai is Esther's cousin, and he learns about this plot that Haman creates in order to kill all of the Jews. And the king now has approved of this royal decree. He signed it with his signet ring. And so Mordecai is absolutely undone. He tears his clothes, puts on sackcloth. He's crying out before God at the king's gate. And so all of the Jews begin hearing this, that they are soon going to be extinguished, annihilated, and they begin to cry out. So verse 3 tells us there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting. Now just take a moment and think about that. Can you imagine what they're going through? 
they've just received notice of a state-sponsored genocide, and there is nothing they can do about it except to pray. And although everybody feels absolutely powerless, Mordecai knows the one person in the kingdom who has a chance of saving the Jews. It's his cousin Esther. So what does he do? He makes sure she gets a copy of the decree to show her, to make sure she understands that this is not the king's bluff. This is serious. This edict has the king's backing. And not only that, but the king is so desperate to go through with this decree because he is bankrupt. This whole thing is financially motivated. Now, let me give you a little bit of history. If you look at verse seven, it says, it mentions that Mordecai told him, Hatak, that's Esther's king, uh, the king's eunuch, the ex- it says the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasury for the destruction of the Jews. Now, why is that in here? Why is this mention of money in here? And this is very interesting. I mentioned this before in the first, when we began the series, but if you remember, King Ahasuerus is King Xerxes. Xerxes is his, uh, the name that he's most uh, known by. Well, if you remember in chapter one, Xerxes throws his huge party, six-month party, 180 days, where he invites all the officials and all of the governors, and it says the armies of Persia and the armies of Media. Now, this is very strategic. We didn't mention this earlier, but I mention it now because Xerxes' father is named Darius. Darius had mounted an attack against Greece and he had lost. And so when Xerxes came to power, he wanted to prove himself that he was a better king than his father. So he began to strategize uh, a military campaign against Greece. And so when he calls the kings and the provinces together for six months, showing off all that he has, he's trying to get them on his side. He's trying to get their backing. What the text doesn't tell us, but what we know from historical records is that Xerxes went and he fought against the Greeks. And we know that he came back utterly defeated and humiliated. Well, the worst part about mounting this attack was that when he went, he spent all of his money. So when he came back, his treasury was nearly empty. He was almost bankrupt. So then in chapter three, when Haman comes along and says, hey, I'd like to kill a bunch of people. And the king's like, oh, that's not so good. And he says, but I'll give you 10,000 talents of silver. The king's like, speak no more. I'll take that. So he jumps on the opportunity. And the reason this is mentioned is because it's showing us a reason why it would be no easy feat to change Xerxes' mind. Because you would need to outgive what Haman is offering. So this is an impossible situation. Nobody knows what to do. Except Mordecai. He goes to Esther, he sends someone to Esther, wants Esther to do something about this. But Esther seems a little unsure of what Mordecai is asking her. If you notice in the past, if you remember part of the story, Esther did everything that Mordecai told her to do. She listened so well. She did all of this to get the crown. She did all of this to be queen. She listened faithfully. But now that she is the queen, now that she has the crown, She's a little bit more opinionated, a little less willingly compliant. Before, she had nothing. And so it was easy to risk everything. Why? She have nothing? I can risk it. Why? Because I can gain everything. But now, she has everything. The question is, why would she risk it? Because she might end up with nothing. Right, Esther got pretty comfortable in the palace. 
Remember Mordecai had told her to hide her identity and she did such a good job of hiding her identity that in fact when the royal decree goes out that all the Jews are going to be killed, Esther has no idea. When Mordecai is crying and lamenting, she sends him clothes. Oh, maybe clothes will cheer him up. And then Mordecai has to come back and say, don't you know, here's the decree. Don't you know what's going on? Esther has no idea because she's so comfortable in the palace. Well, when she finds out, Mordecai tells her, this is what you need to do. And Esther's first reaction is what? Trying to find excuses not to do it. Trying to find reasons not to do it. She gives two. The first comes in verse 11. She says, don't you know if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law, to be put to death. Uh, Esther remembers very clearly the last time a queen was bold before the king. And that didn't end so well for that queen. So she doesn't want to die for, die for this. She's saying, how dare you ask me this, Mordecai? No way. Don't you know that I'll die if I go in? And then the second reason she gives is, uh, then she says, I have not been called to come into the king for these 30 days. What's she saying there? She's saying, I'm already walking on thin ice. The, call, the king hasn't called me into his presence for a whole month. I mean, I, I have no weight here. He's probably losing interest in me. He's probably getting bored because there's thousands of other women in the harem. So she gives a little pushback, a little excuses, and then this is where Mordecai comes in and hits her with verse 14. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Now this is a question, but it's actually a statement. It's an encouragement and a reminder of a beautiful truth that God's providence, that in God's providence, she has been placed here for a reason. Mordecai is basically saying this, don't you realize that you are exactly where God wants you to be so he can use you for his purpose? Don't you know God has providentially orchestrated your life to be here right now for this opportunity and to not shy away from it? And this is an important reminder she needs to hear. Someone saying to her, you do not wear the crown and sit on the throne coincidentally. You are here providentially. You are in this moment, at this time, in the midst of this crisis, not by chance, but by intention. The crisis didn't accidentally find its way to you, but God has steered it to you. Now what will you do? Verse 14 in verse 14, Mordecai uses a, for, a verbal form in Hebrew called the hithil, which is a passive voice. And I bring that up because it's not simply that Esther has come to the kingdom, but it might be better translated as something like this. Who knows whether or not you were brought to the kingdom for such a time as this? Why does Mordecai phrase it that way? Because he's reminding her this. I know that you've compromised, I know that you strategized. I know that you wisely maneuvered your way to get to the throne. That's how she constantly won favor with all the people who were in the king's courts. But he's saying, you know what? Although you did all that work, it was ultimately God who brought you here. That God is sovereign over the details of your story. And so, yeah, you may want to claim that you got here by your own efforts and your own wisdom and your own beauty, but don't you ever take claim for the work that God is doing. Because the looks and the charm that she had, God gave her those things. The opportunities presented to her, God gave her those things. The clever thinking and charming words that she used, God gave her those things. Why? So that in this exact moment, Esther could do 
what she was being called to do. You see, God is not stringing together coincidence after coincidence, but he is bringing together, orchestrating providence after providence. And it's important for us to stop and realize that verse 14 and the challenge and encouragement of verse 14 isn't only for Esther and the story, but it's for all of God's people. It's for you and for me. Here's why. We will find ourselves in the midst of difficult moments all the time. Life brings those things to us. Now, when life brings a hard decision to you, a difficult decision to you, an inconveniencing moment to you, what's the first thing you do? Well, if you're selfish like me, the first thing you do is you look for the exits. You try to get out of the difficulty. You avoid the discomfort. How many of us realize that God has providentially brought that to our door? That in his wise plan that we were brought for a moment such as this, whatever it is that's facing us. So for example, who is in your life? Who has God providentially brought into your life? Who have you been introduced to recently? What are their stories? Are they sharing their stories with you? Are you asking to hear their stories? Maybe God has brought you into that moment for a time such as this. Where do you work? Who are your coworkers? Who works around you? Who are your clients? Is there a season of life within your company or your business or your associates that you've found yourself involved in? Are you in a situation where your input or your experience or your influence can contribute? Maybe God has brought you to that moment for such a time as this. Who do you cross paths daily with? Who recently has opened up to you about something personal? Who has shared with you a secret about their life or a prayer request with you that required their vulnerability to open up? Maybe God has brought you to that moment for such a time as this. So then you're faced with the decision. Will you walk into it with them or will you walk away from it? Who has entrusted you with their burdens? Who is asking for your advice? Who has made the difficult decision to admit their need for help and ask you to walk alongside them. Who knows, maybe God has brought you to that moment for such a time as this. And we're faced with the decision, will we follow up and will we shoulder it with them? Or are we going to pass it off and keep a distance because things may get complicated and messy and hard and I just don't have time for this? You see, when you understand the importance of verse 14, you realize that the things that are happening in our lives, they're not random, they're not coincidental. Can you perceive that God has placed you exactly where he has you right now with the hard decisions, the hard moments, the inconveniencing realities for such a time as this? So the question is, what will you do? This is the second point, a moment of decision. You see, up until now, Mordecai says this to Esther, and she really doesn't want to do it. 
And we can relate because often we don't want to step up to deal with those hard and difficult moments that come our way. So Esther makes excuses, and to be honest, these are very true excuses, very legitimate concerns. I might die. The king hasn't talked to me in 30. These are very legitimate things. But she's also not willing to. She's comfortable. She doesn't want to be bothered. She's kind of thinking, why would I risk my life? But if God has brought her exactly to where he intends her to be, then she's faced with a moment of decision. Will I step back or will I step up from the opportunity that God has presented before me? And the same thing is true of all of us. When we have these moments of decisions, will you step up, will you face up to those things that God has called you to or will you look for an escape? Will you try to find a way out of it? Will you seek reasons to not have to help? Will you try to pass somebody off and their problems to another person? Will you plead ignorance? Well, something happens in Esther's life where she does end up stepping up to it. What happens? Because she's at a crossroads. What will she do? And I think by thinking about it, it will help us examine our own life. So what happens? So she's placed in this very difficult crisis. There's a crossroads before her. She seems very unwilling to do it, but then something changes. In verse 16, she says to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. And in her moment of decision, Esther finds the courage and the strength to do a very hard thing. Because she realizes that if God has put her in that position for a reason, if God has raised her up for a time such as this, then he must be in control and she can face any danger. So she says those powerful words, if I perish, I perish. She's willing to put herself in harm's way because if God has sovereignly placed her there, then it must mean that ultimate harm cannot come upon her. It must mean that if she loses it all, in one sense, she has not lost it all. You see, Esther needed to make a decision. And when she does, something dramatic and noticeable happens in the narrative. This is absolutely beautiful. You see, as she begins to trust God and decides to care more about others than herself, it's in that moment when she truly becomes beautiful. It's as if she says, it, it, it's as she says yes to God and no to the world that her inner beauty finally catches up and surpasses her outward beauty. What do I mean? In the entire book of Esther, she is called Queen Esther 14 times. 13 of those 14 times happen after she finally says, if I perish, I perish. And what the author is showing us is this, that Esther is most royal. She's most dignified. She's most radiating with queenly beauty when she is willing to lay down her life for others. Because everything she's done until now has been for herself, at least on a conscious level. She's just been plain Esther. But as soon as she starts thinking of others, as soon as she has everything and is willing to do anything to let it go to save somebody else, that's when she becomes Queen Esther. It's quite amazing. It's actually a stunning literary detail. 
Well, some of you who are really listening are going, well, wait, you just said Queen Esther 14 times, and 13 times it happens after she says, if I perish, I perish. Doesn't that prove that there's a time that she's, she's called Queen Esther when she's not doing this? Well, actually, no. It actually it supports my case because do you know the one other instance when she's called Queen Esther? That's before she says, if I perish, I perish. The one time, the one other time she's called Queen Esther is in the end of chapter two when Mordecai hears the plot to assassinate the king. She, he tells it to Esther and Esther then goes and tells King Ahasuerus. And in that moment, when Queen Esther is doing something for another person, she is referred to as Queen Esther. Accepting God's providence in her life, now able to see her life through that truth, Esther has become queen. And for the first time, we see in verse 17, Mordecai is doing what Esther tells him to do. The roles have reversed. Esther is no longer a little girl in a big kingdom. She is a powerful woman serving a big God. How about you? Has your inner beauty caught up with your outer beauty? In your moment of decision, are you able to embrace the difficult opportunities that present themselves for you to live out the gospel, even if it comes at a sacrifice or a great cost to yourself? One author, Brian Gregory, he helps us think through this by giving us a few examples. He says things like this. He says, if people are speaking ill of somebody else, they're slandering somebody else, they're gossiping about a person in front of you, can you come to that person's defense, stand up for them and say, if I'm excluded, I'm excluded, but I'll do the right thing. If you find yourself in an unethical opportunity for financial gain, can you say, I will act with integrity and if I suffer loss, I suffer loss. If you find yourself being ridiculed for your faith and your beliefs, can you say, I will not be ashamed of Jesus, and if I'm rejected, I'm rejected. If you find yourself as a trusted confidant in another's burdens, which are so very heavy, can you say, I will bear this burden, and if it weighs heavily on me, it weighs heavily on me. If a fellow believer is living in blatant, obvious, unrepentant sin, it's hurting them, it's destroying their relationship with God and with others, and it's come to your attention, can you say, I will love this person more than I love my own comfort. I will speak truth into their life, and if it costs me discomfort, it costs me discomfort. Friends, this is, this is so hard. I'm not pretending it's easy, but this is what it means to grow as a Christian disciple, to be willing to take the risk, to be willing to experience being taken advantage of, to be willing to be trampled over. You are where you are, made to be who you are, with the people in your life, facing that unique experience and circumstances, all by God's sovereign providence. So when such opportunities come your way and they require you to expend yourself, to put yourself out there, to be vulnerable, to give sacrificially, to abound in generosity, to exercise patience, to risk rejection or to suffer loss, will you choose to live out the gospel in the moment of decision? It's not easy to listen to complaints and cries. It's not easy to receive uncomfortable news 
It's not easy to keep having your life disrupted by other people's issues. It's not easy to face the overwhelming shadow of people's darknesses that sort of cloud, make a cloud over your bright and comfortable life. And it's true, isn't it? All of us. I would much rather shy away from speaking difficult words that I don't want to. I would much rather shy away from, from the hard truths that I don't want to say. I would much rather not have to make a confession you know, that I don't want to own up to. I, of course I don't want to make apologies. Of course I don't want to sit when my day is going so well and pick up that phone call knowing that if I answer this, then I'll be on the phone for an hour hearing complaint or hearing struggles. We don't want those interruptions. We don't want those disruptions. We don't want those inconveniences. Yet do we know that if that phone call comes, if that text message comes, if you open up that email, if you see that person, if the tears begin to flow, that God has you right where he wants you for such a time as this. And you must embrace that as an opportunity to live out the gospel, not as an inconvenience that's disrupting your day. So how can you become that kind of Christian? How can we mature in that way? How can we be a church that does not shy away from those inconveniences but sees them as an opportunity to act? And the only answer, friends, is through the power of the gospel, which leads to our third and last point, a power that changes. You know, up until chapter four, Esther is not presented in the, in the best light. If we didn't have chapter four and following, nobody should ever name their daughter Esther because that's, not a, that's like naming her Jezebel. <laughs> See, because Esther does nothing that's worthy of emulation up to this point. But it's only once we get to chapter four that now this is why parents name their daughters Esther. And yet here's the thing, the power to live this way does not simply come from admiring Esther as, as an example. The Bible is not a story that gives you examples to follow. Because the power doesn't come when I read this and I get inspired and I say, well, you know what, I'm gonna live this way. No, not at all. The change happens as your heart begins to change. There's an inner heart change that actually gives us power to live as we so often don't want to. Now, how do we get that? Well, if we're honest, left to ourselves, we are prone to make excuses, to find reasons out of certain situations. And like Esther, there really may be times that those reasons are legitimate and they are reasonable. So the goal or the way to change isn't to show you why your excuses are bad. Someone says, well, maybe you should give a little bit more time, and you say, well, my time, don't you know I'm doing this and this and this? The goal isn't to say, well, actually, those things aren't that, that big of a deal. It's not to make your reason seem less important. It's not to convince you that you're being illogical or irrational. That's not the way to change. The way to change is to connect your life to a power so much so that your whole attitude and your heart begins to become willing to embrace whatever comes your way, even if it comes at a great cost. And this power, this thing that's gonna change you is not something you muster up yourself. It's something done to you. It's something you understand about yourself. Well, what is that? It's to understand 
who Jesus Christ is and what he has done for you. You see, all of us in here, this is admirable. We want to be like Esther. In those hard and difficult moments, of course I want to stand up and say, if I perish, I perish. We all want to say that. that that's great. I, I, I want to be like that kind of person. But in those moments, I say, if I perish, I'm out of here. We all want to be able to risk it all, but the reality is we're afraid of losing whatever it is we have. For Esther, she didn't want to lose her position in the palace. The reason is because she was valuing her status, her royalty, who she was now in the kingdom. She was valuing that more than God. And the same thing is true of us. Why don't we jump at these inconveniences? Because there are things we don't want to lose. Our time, our comfort, our energy, our security, our influence, our, our money, our, our, our power. We want to keep these things. Why? Because we value them more than God. And so, of course, everything is going to seem like a disruption because it's attacking what I'm valuing most. So what is going to change you? What will free you from valuing anything else more than God? It comes only from being valued by another in such an incredible way that it draws us in by the compelling nature of its truth. The only person who's going to value you and love you in such a way to free you is to understand the love of Jesus. You see, Esther in the story is a mediator. I will go to the king on the behalf of my people, but Jesus comes as the greater mediator. He came with the mission to save us. Esther is told, who knows, maybe you came to the kingdom for such a time as this. Well, we know, friends, for a fact that Jesus came into this world for such a time as Calvary. He did not back away from it. He was sent into the world to die, and in the appropriate time, he came and he sacrificed himself. So Romans 5, 6 tells us, for while we were still sinners, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Galatians 4, 4 says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. And in that moment of decision, Jesus Christ, he gave up his life for us without any hesitation. You see, what Esther was going through in here could be called a Gethsemane experience. She confessed, if I perish, I perish. But Jesus had a greater Gethsemane experience where he declared, when I perish, I perish. He has God's will to be done, and in doing so, he knew his own fate and the destruction that awaited him on the cross. But in great love for us, he saved us from our death by dying in our place, the death we deserved because of our sin. He was the royal king who had everything and didn't just risk it, but gave it up for us so that in him we might have eternal life and salvation. To understand you are the recipient of this kind of sacrifice, to understand the king of kings has cherished you he has cherished you and valued you so much that he took your place on the cross is to then have an identity and a freeing power so great that your heart changes because to be valued by Jesus and to value him in returns means I can risk everything and anything for his purposes because I don't treasure what I once did. You see, once Jesus becomes the treasure of your life, because you understand that he values you and he loves you to the point of his death, then you realize that what I no longer value, you can take it all. Because who I value 
will never be lost to me. Jesus will never be lost to me. You see, this is the power of the gospel. It does something to our heart. It grips us in such a way that our time and our comfort and our security and the, and the power we have and the emotional energy and the security we want, we're so willing to give it up. Because I don't value those things anymore. Because I value God above all. You see, the gospel gives us a new paradigm, a new perspective by which we are able to look at the world and see that the things God sends by way of his providence is not an inconvenience to avoid, but an opportunity to live out the gospel. So this week, there may be an opportunity God sends your way. Maybe it's to love an enemy or to sacrifice your time or speak a hard truth or give an encouragement to pray for somebody Listen to their complaint. Follow up with the problem. It could be any number, any number of these things. And in that moment, will you be able to understand God has placed me in this moment for such a time as this? And then when this happens, because it will happen, when you don't want to, <laughs> when you don't want to respond, when you don't want to pick up, when you don't want to listen, when it's so inconvenient or costly or difficult, let the gospel empower you. And if that means you perish or you suffer lost or you're ostracized or you're fired or you're judged, if you have to bear someone's burdens, if you have to share their hurt, if you have to sit with someone in their darkness, if you have to share their pain, if you have to stand for what's true, then you can because you have a perfect Savior in Jesus Christ who died for you so that you could have life in his name. And when you get the gospel into your heart and you believe you are loved and valued by Jesus, it frees you to understand and embrace God's providence so that whatever difficult and hard moments come your way, they are not inconveniences to avoid, but they are opportunities for you to act for the good of others and the glory of God. You see, if the gospel really does begin to grip our hearts, we will become a different kind of church. You will become different kinds of people. We won't run and flee when there's opportunities. But we will be able to say, if I perish, I perish. Why? For Christ said, when I perish, I perish. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for the power of the gospel. Not first because of what it makes us, but because in it, we are promised that through Jesus Christ we are saved because we were these people in danger and Jesus Christ as the mediator, he died for us so that we would have life. So that is the basis of our salvation. We are so thankful. But we're thankful also that the gospel is a power for sanctification and that it can actually change us and free us and transform us and the people who now live for you and live in order to minister to others and to serve others and to walk with them, not by our own strength, not by our own power, not by our own creativity or resources, but because we have been so profoundly changed by what Jesus has done for us.
Make us, Lord, into this kind of community. Make us, Lord, into this kind of church. Make each one of us into this kind of Christian for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now may the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and the love of our good, good Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all, both now and forevermore. Amen. Hear the words of dismissal from James chapter 1, verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Friends, go in peace.